In the wake of Imola 1994 and the death of Ayrton Senna, Formula One was short on star power. In the previous two years, it had lost Senna, Nigel Mansell and Alain Prost from the grid, all drivers who helped generate mainstream coverage in F1 in their own ways. Unfortunately, we were robbed of the prospect of a Senna versus Michael Schumacher era, but F1 needed something to step into the breach. And the next two years were all about a new rivalry as Damon Hill went to battle with Schumacher and Williams versus Benetton became the main story in the middle of the 1990s. On this episode of Bring Back V10s, we'll be looking at the first explosion in this rivalry when the 1994 World Championship was decided in controversial fashion on the streets of Adelaide and Schumacher took the first of his seven World Championships. As always, we want to hear your thoughts on this episode and our series in general. And our next episode is the much-anticipated series finale where we'll be answering your questions. So there's still a little bit of time to get in touch with at We Are The Race on social media using the hashtag BringBackV10s so you can let us know the questions you want to put to us in our final episode. So joining me for our latest trip down memory lane are a returning Ed Straw and leaving his debut until very late in the series, Andrew Vanderberg. So welcome, Andy. And you can have the first question as you're the newbie, we could devote an entire series to the events of 1994 and there'll be many more episodes in the future about this season. But when you think of the conclusion of the title fight, what's the first thing that springs to mind for you? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is that image of Schumacher up on two wheels uh, and the car being parked up against the road and then later cutting to Schumacher as he's uh, standing there at the side of the track, doing his best daytime soap opera actor as he's trying to pretend to be simultaneously uh, upset and mystified and delighted all at the same time, and not really convincing with any of them. Where would you get? Where would you stand on that, Ed? Is it the same for you? Well, I was just briefly distracted by you describing. Uh... Uh, Andrew as a, as a late debutant because that just made me instantly cast him as Jean Denis Delatraz, who of course made his famously slow debut it's in incredibly the, harsh it, slow debut in the Larousse at uh, Adelaide that season. <laughs> Delatraz was an underrated uh, driver, so I think you're going to be an underrated guest. So uh, back on topic, Ed. Come on. Sorry. Uh, yeah, that won't be the first of my uh, weird digressions. Yeah. Well, as a 14 year old <laughs> flag waving Damon Hill fan at the time. I can still remember that anticipation, getting up early on the Sunday morning, build up with all the talking heads, declaring who they thought would win. Obviously, at the time, I was furious by the outrage and injustice of it all, as you are when you're looking at it at that age and as a fan of the of the wronged party. Uh, today, I've got a slightly more nuanced view and understanding of, of, of the whole thing, but I do actually think that's a great reminder of how important it is to remember those feelings and experiences when you're a fan, particularly a younger fan, because these are the, these are the people we're writing for and, and talking to, to, to at the race so it's good to be able to hold on to those those memories when I had a very different relationship with Formula One. Yeah I remember getting up for that race as well then going back to bed afterwards and, and then waking up again later that Sunday and sort of thinking did that really happen and then immediately thinking will there be action against Schumacher you know is anything going to happen of course it didn't but we'll come back to that because we pick up the story in the closing stages of the season with Schumacher preparing to come back from his two race ban for failing to adhere properly to the black flag he was shown at the British Grand Prix where he overtook Hill on the formation lap. And that race will get its own episode at some point, I'm sure. Schumacher was also disqualified from the Belgian Grand Prix for his car's plank being illegal. So including the Silverstone exclusion that he picked up and the ban he's just served, that was four out of the 16 races for the whole season that Schumacher was scratched from. 
Before all the controversy kicked off, which takes us back to the French Grand Prix before Silverstone, Schumacher was already 37 points clear of Hill. He'd had a great start to the season and Hill and Williams were struggling to find their way following the events of Imola. By the time Schumacher returns from his ban for the final three races, which is where we're focusing today, there's just one point between them. And Schumacher's only valid score since that French Grand Prix was a victory in Hungary. So Hill made hay during that period. He won four of the six races between France and where we are now. So, Andy, is it fair to say that without the ban and the disqualifications and everything else that went on for Benetton and Schumacher during that part of 94, there wouldn't have been much of a title fight at all, would there? Um, going back to what Ed said about uh, remembering these things in, in context and... Uh, I would have been a, a student at the time, and it always uh, struck me that that there was a level of artifice about this, that the ban for a rule um, that I don't think had ever been enforced before, uh, the disqualification for Spa, all sort of smacked of Formula One, and maybe Bernie in particular trying to engineer some tension and excitement uh, into the end of what had been a um, pretty horrific championship uh, all, all things considered um, but yes if you look at the pace that Schumacher and, and Benetton uh, demonstrated up until that point you could conceive of them winning most if not all of those races that, it, that he ultimately missed and there not being um, any form of championship decider especially not taking it down to the wire uh, as ultimately was the case I think if you look at what went on that season, regardless of the rights and wrongs of uh, of everything, you can't argue that Schumacher was the was the best performer. We we were seeing we'd seen signs of the, the phenomenal ability he had in the in the previous years with Benetton, but it really all co- all came together for him in in '94. He, he drove brilliantly. Now, had Damon Hill won the title, he would have been a worthy champion for for different reasons. Uh, you know, he he picked up the Williams team. It's only his second full season in Formula One. And when there was, was that opportunity to close in and he knew he had to win uh, the races at Monza and, and Estoril and then really take the fight into the final few races, he, he did that under tremendous pressure. So enormous amount of respect for Damon Hill for that. But I think even Damon will uh, will be happy to, to accept that in terms of the actual driver level at that time, then Schumacher was the, was the, the worthy champion that year but of course there's so many other things that muddy the waters that so obviously we started to reference already yeah and Schumacher takes a pretty comfortable victory on his comeback at Jerez uh, although Hill was furious because a faulty fuel valve meant his car spent most of the race running with a lot more fuel on board than it should have and a frustrated Hill said at the time I wanted to show that we turned things around I wanted to prove that our recent run of success was purely on merit and had little to do with Michael's absence. But the thing that really annoys me is the fact that I could have won. Michael was lucky. He had a lot to thank that fuel valve for. Our competitive state was not reflected. I don't want Benetton to think they thrashed us. Winning was much more possible than it looked. And we'll reference quite a few times Hill's excellent book, as we have earlier in the series. If you've not read it, you really, really should. And Hill recalls getting the cold shoulder from Frank Williams and Patrick Head after the Jerez defeat. And the feeling he felt that the feeling in their eyes was that Schumacher's comeback victory had confirmed that their driver wasn't up to the job, which was probably the perception from the outside at the time as well. As we said, there was a feeling Schumacher would have won a lot of races through that summer period. And he comes back and he trounces Hill immediately. But once Hill found out about the fuel gauge issue, 
He went to the factory to fight his corner and he says it was like pulling teeth to extract any sort of apology from Frank and Patrick. Now, a lot of this episode will be about Hill's relationship with Williams and we will come back to that. But at this point, do you think the disappointment of, you know, Damon would have had his hopes up, Ed, about, right, I've had great momentum off of uh, these races while Schumacher's not been here. Now I can really take the fight to him. Could the disappointment of this result have had quite a big effect on Hill going into the final two races, particularly as he felt vulnerable with his position within the team? Yeah, I think it, it clearly had an effect on him. And it it was not, as you've alluded to, it was not so much the result, it was more the circumstances. I think there was a little bit of uh, there was a little bit of criticism of his drive that was never not not only not apologized for enthusiastically in private, but wasn't really made properly public at the time. So this was contributing to that feeling that Hill had that he wasn't uh, really, he didn't really have the team behind him. And of course, this was a guy who was a test driver a few years ago. He was there as the number two driver. So he knew he was kind of artificially promoted into this position. So that probably played a part in those insecurities. And and Damon Hill is uh, probably a, a too well-adjusted person to be a, to be a world champion. Um, and so he doesn't have that perhaps that absolutely superhuman self-belief that, uh, that, that say, a Schumacher did have. But if it did have an effect on him, on track with what was to come, it was clearly positive. And perhaps he got into that, uh, that well, it's me against the world mentality that really helped him to, to dig deep in those, uh, in those final two races. But I, so I think the kind of local effect, the short-term effect, was probably uh, probably for the better. But when you look at the wider context with Hill's relationship with Williams, perhaps there was a, a longer-term negative that uh, that was played that would continue to play out over the years. I think um, yeah, Hill was quite right to to be aggrieved about that uh, situation. If you remember, the the FW16 um, wasn't a brilliantly conceived car; it was a bit of a dog uh, when it first came out. Okay, Senna sort of hustled it to pole in those first couple of races, but it, it really wasn't a super competitive machine. But in those days, of course, you could pretty much do unlimited amounts of testing, and, and they'd got it into a, a position where it was pretty strong. There'd been a, a test at Estoril uh, in the break where, you know, Williams were feeling pretty, and Damon were feeling pretty confident about the pace they had. And I think, you know, looking at that race at Hereth, um, there's, in the first part of it, he was... He was on um, Schumacher's pace, so I can, I can see his disappointment. You know, we'd gone. I think at that point the championship gap had gone down to a, a single point. So, you know, this had been a, the reset button had been hit, and we were now in a sort of three race dash to the championship, at which Williams and Hill were right in the thick of. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I, Williams, I've always had quite strange relationships with their drivers but I can see why he would Hill would think that they should be right behind him now and pushing on to win this championship so that means Hill heads to Japan five points behind Schumacher because as you said there Andy there was only a point in it going into Jerez there's still 20 on the table so it's all still up for grabs and on a miserable day at Suzuka Hill and Schumacher end up in a race against the clock the race was red flagged earlier on and when it restarted we had an aggregate race which meant that the gaps from before the red flag were still included. So at the restart, Hill was already seven seconds behind Schumacher. But Schumacher stops twice after the red flag, and Benetton doesn't realise Hill was only stopping once. So with nine laps to go, Schumacher is 14 seconds behind Hill. Schumacher hacks away at the gap. So this is the gap on the timing screens, not the gap on track. And it comes down from 12 seconds to 10.1 
8.3, 7, 5.2, 4.2, 2.4 going into the last lap. And then at the check of flag, it's 3.3. So it went back up. Now, Ed, Hill says this was the drive of his life. How special was it? Yeah, well, you can't really argue with uh, with Hill's assessment. When you factor in everything, what was at stake? He knew he had to had to beat Schumacher. The conditions, which were appalling. The fact that this wasn't an unusual aggregate race. So you can't just kind of keep a keep a car behind and then think well if he catches me with a few laps to go he'll still have to pass me so the old saying of catching is one thing passing is another didn't apply in this situation it was basically a, a, a time trial so you've got this other problem that at least if you're battling with someone who's in your mirrors you can see where they are but Hill didn't didn't know where where Schumacher could could lap he was probably thinking well is Michael cruising around? Well, I'm sort of putting it on the edge here and feeling I'm I'm in danger. Is, is Michael just cruising around going, oh, this is easy. I can just stick two seconds on just like that by uh, digging a bit more into, into the red zone. So you've got all these uncertainties and it's just a, it's a pure manifestation of just you against the track, you against the clock, you against the conditions. So it's almost more like a qualifying situation in the toughest possible situation at formula one one of its most demanding circuits where margin for error is 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 zero and there'll always be that thing in the back of your mind of how stupid will you look if you put it into the wall uh while leading with uh, with a few laps to go so that to me does show the the steel that hill did have the fact that he could prevail through that and yeah it's just just a brilliant set of circumstances i always think the circumstances are important because any of these drivers in Formula One, or most of them anyway, are at a certain level where they can do where they can do great things in a certain window. It's how how much you can do that under stress, how often you could do that. And while Hill wasn't able in his career to do it constantly, there were these windows when he was absolutely sensational, and that, and that was one of them, especially when you factor in the, the the wider circumstances. Yeah. So let's try to dig into this race a little bit more because. To really do justice to Hill's performance, we need to hear his description of the day. And in his book, he devotes quite a lot of time to this. And it's fascinating to read. And interestingly, he says that in the first stint where he was trying to keep up with Schumacher, that was just as challenging as fending him off at the end. And when he had Schumacher in front of him and he was admiring the genius at work, if you could say, uh, he described it as the most incredible driving display I've ever seen in a racing car. And he said his mission was to keep the Benetton's red light in view because otherwise Schumacher would be away in the murky grey Suzuka conditions. So, Andy, before I bring you in, here's a bit more of what Hill said. And this is from his book. He said, this was the highest level of driving I'd ever experienced in my life. I knew I was on the edge of my ability up here in the thin air with one of the very best there has ever been. Michael was working right out there on the end of the branch where most people dared not go. However, talking about that first stint, he said he took confidence from Schumacher pitting earlier than he expected as it confirmed that some of that performance had been down to the Benetton being lighter. Now, when I read out the gaps earlier, you'd notice it was going down, 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 and it goes up on the final lap. And Hill's description there was that he overdid it in reference to trying to respond to Schumacher's pace. But he talks in great detail about that final lap. He says when he started the last lap, the voices in his head that would usually urge him on had nothing left to give. So as he crossed the line to start the final lap, he said, Ayrton, if you're up there, I could do with a bit of a hand here. And when you read what he describes next, maybe he did get a hand because this is what he said. All I can say is that from the moment I exited turn one, 
I did not drive the car in any normal sense until I reached the hairpin halfway around the lap. I was possessed. I watched my hands moving the wheel, completely free to do whatever they wanted in response to the car moving around beneath me. I was removed one step back from all this action going on. I was just an observer of something phenomenal. It was quite unbelievable, what I suppose one could call an out-of-body experience in which I appeared to have totally surrendered trying to control the car myself. Everything seemed to be happening completely by instinct. This lasted all the way through the S's, up the hill, round the terrifying Dunlop corner, through Degner until I reached the hairpin, where I must have returned to my normal in-body state and I took back control. I would never come close to driving like that again. All other experiences had been poor imitations. Andy, do you think uh, there's a bit of a familiarity with the famous quotes from Senna describing his uh, famous Monaco pole position lap there, isn't there? Yeah, I went back and uh, I, I re-watched uh, all of that race just to sort of try and get my thoughts back on it. And, um, you know, it, it's a it's a great drive. And, um, you know, I, one, one of the things I was going to say about it was, uh, you know, how brilliantly composed and consistent uh, Hill was. But actually, when I watched it, he was pretty ragged on that penultimate lap. So maybe he needed a bit of uh, divine inspiration uh, to help him get across the line. But... Um, he was certainly, uh, you know, phenomenal performance. But actually, I think if you need to look at the race as, as an entirety, and it was the work that he'd done in that first part, um, where you know he talks about how uh, brilliantly Schumacher was driving at that point. But it was the fact that he was able to keep him relatively in sight. I mean, they were miles up the road from uh, Alessia and Mansell, who were frenetically battling behind them. But it was the fact that that gap was so small that actually gave him something um, to work with in those closing stages to to deliver it. But it's certainly, you know, it's a it's a really top draw drive uh, and easily the best of Hill's career, I think. I think what Hill is describing there, which does kind of manifest itself in slightly spiritual terms, really, it's basically how the brain works. We talk about things like instincts and subconscious. If you can just rely on the sum total of your experience and skills and feel and everything and just operate subconsciously you will perform at your best and actually the challenge for for people in sport and and any complex challenge actually is to try and release to that if you see what i mean because the subconscious processes things far faster than the conscious and if you're driving around thinking oh is there grip there should i turn in there where shall I break? You will actually be a little bit slower, especially because you're thinking about how stupid perhaps the whole enterprise is, given the given the safety uh, of of the situation. So, I think what Hill's access there, you know, it's it's a it's a neurological thing. It's it's how it's how the brain best operates, and I'm sure it's very it's a very unnerving place to be, really, because it it will kind of feel like you're out of control because it the, the reactions you're not thinking. I'm doing this. There's not even the the kind of uh, impression that you're you're fully controlling your actions it's just sort of happening so i imagine that's quite a an alarming th- alarming thing to to experience in a in a in a way and i think people like to kind of understand and digest it through this sort of more spiritual uh, interpretation and i and this is why sometimes we see drivers do have uh, have great days when when things go go right but it's it's so difficult because effectively, if you do have to kind of let go and really rely on that subconscious processing, you've got to set everything aside. And again, in sport, if you can 
if you can perform as if it doesn't matter when it matters most in the crunch moments, that's where you make the difference between winning and, and losing. And that's what was uh, was impressive about it. And I'm sure when he sort of thinks about that, he'll think, well, I wish I could have put myself in that zone sort of consciously put myself into that more subconscious zone because then what would I have been capable of achieving and and probably someone like Michael Schumacher spent more time sat in that kind of zone than uh, a lot of other drivers because we know Michael Schumacher as a driver he wasn't he wasn't magically half a second faster than anyone but he was consistently at a level that meant he strung together brilliant races great qualifying laps that allowed him to to perform at that level so that that's that's what it's uh, what it's all about I don't think there's that there's no I don't think there's any mystery to it in terms of what's going on, but the real mystery is how you get yourself to that and, and do it. And it's just absolutely for, uh, contributes to how phenomenal that drive was for Hill. We should note, actually, Hill was a very good driver in the wet. We saw a lot of good wet performances in his career as well. That's always considered to be a measure of uh, of a good natural driver, in inverted commas, because that's a very dangerous phrase that I won't go into. I won't go into a lengthy speech about. But yeah, he had the ability uh, in those conditions to to do that. So, you know, we have to... We have to respect that level, and I, I imagine Schumacher probably got out of the car after that race and thought, well, "Fair play." I didn't necessarily think you could uh, you could do that. So this probably start to ramp up the pressure on on Schumacher as well. Yeah, there's quite an iconic image I think in Park Ferme where Schumacher does properly go over to Hill and congratulate him. I think he was very aware of the level of that performance, and uh, I'm aware that for the first time in this series, Ed, you said you wouldn't go into a long speech about something. So I appreciate that because we've got a lot of ground to cover. Let's go back to the Hill and Williams dynamic because Hill comes away from this weekend pretty fed up with how he's being treated. And one of the things uh, that wound him up over the Japan weekend was after qualifying when Patrick Head offended Hill by telling him that Mansell in the second Williams or back in the second Williams by this point was 20 kph faster than him through 130R, even though it was Hill who had qualified two places ahead. The Mansell factor was an ongoing theme for Hill in 94. Obviously, Nigel raced uh, in France and then did these final three races, uh, replacing David Coulthard. And Hill talks and thinks that the team is obsessed with Mansell. He felt that he was only temporarily important to Williams and it grated on him how everybody hung on Mansell's every word in the debriefs, even though Mansell was saying the same things about the car that Hill had been saying all year. So Damon came to the conclusion that Williams just wanted all of its drivers to be like Mansell. And we've heard themes like that about Williams over the years, haven't we? You know, the drivers they loved, Alan Jones, Nigel Mansell, the fighters. And despite Williams having recently taken up its option for Hill for 1995, which was supposed to be viewed as a vote of confidence from the team, Damon speaks out in Japan and again in the build-up to the Australian Grand Prix. In Japan, he said... I believe the amount a driver is paid reflects his value to the team, or it should do. I don't think that situation exists at the moment where I am concerned. He gets quizzed again about this on his arrival in Australia, having been encouraged to speak out on the flight over by his friend Barry Sheen. And Hill says, it's not a question of money at all. It's a question of endorsement. It's a question of a show of faith. And I feel that sometimes I've been left not too certain about where I stand. So Ed, do we think... As we've touched on already, was Hill still undervalued by Williams at this point? I mean, they they eventually let him go when he's in the process of winning the 1996 World Championship. So you can see an argument that perhaps they never believed in him. And were the seeds for that 
parting of the ways already in place here. Yeah, I think there was always a certain undervaluing of him, but he was far from the only driver to suffer from that at Williams, as you've uh, as you've alluded to. And yeah, the return of Mansell was unhappy, not just from the way the team treated Mansell. Obviously, Mansell turned up briefly at Manny Cor earlier in the season, then for that run of the last three races. But Obviously, Hill was Mansell's test driver at one stage, so he'd done a lot of uh, the donkey work on the the FW14B that that Mansell took to the 92 championship. So I guess it also kind of cast Hill back to a time when he was very, very much the uh, well, literally the the understudy and the person who was uh, sort of the 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 second the second rate driver, for want of a more generous word, who was just there to pound around and do all do all the hard work. Um, so maybe there was a little bit of his own insecurity coming in there as well but there's no question Williams were very very poor at getting behind their drivers especially when you consider that as you alluded to earlier Williams weren't exactly acing it throughout that season because even if you set aside the fact it took them a while to get the car right it was the French Grand Prix upgrade that really made a difference and although there are reasons for it with the the banning of the driver aids etc the fact you had to have a slightly different approach to the uh to the car's mechanical platform because you didn't have active ride any uh anymore to help you they were still strategically weak and made mistakes so he's probably thinking hang on you're making as many if not more mistakes as I am so if anything he's probably thinking I should be the one expressing no confidence uh, in you and I think that's the problem with Williams there's there's that there was that feeling that they were always doing everything right and the drivers with a with a weak link did tend to bubble to the surface and a slightly cold attitude towards the drivers and yeah I, I can imagine that would have made it difficult in those scenarios but tensions are always high in a scenario like this, aren't they? And you could probably speak to Frank Williams, who speaks very highly of Damon Hill, actually. Um, and he would probably say, well, our job's to get the, the, the driver's job's to do the best they can. We get the best out of the driver. And you can't say that Damon didn't deliver his best in the last few races. So you'd probably say, uh, you, you could probably argue that Williams thought they did the right job as well, treating him that way. I think you have to um, look at the the outfit that, that Williams were at the time, Um you know, they, they were the, the preeminent force uh, in Formula One. Um, they had this big work still with Renault, uh, supplying them probably the best engines on the grid at the time. Uh, they had the biggest sponsors, um, and they were chasing the best drivers. They obviously had Mansell win the championship with them and then brought in Prost to, as the next step forward. Uh, and they'd obviously got the man they always wanted um, with Ayrton Senna, and obviously that... Uh, didn't end as anybody had uh, expected it, but they were clearly looking to to have that, and you can see that that in the way it played out over the next couple of years, they were always looking over their shoulder, whether it was to Villeneuve or Frentzen or whoever, to try and find the next big thing. So, while obviously Hill had been a part of the family and uh, had a great relationship with Adrian Newey from the very top, from from Frank and Patrick, I think he never really had their true support um, as a number one driver and I think when you consider what he went through that year after Senna's death lifting the team getting that Spain victory he probably felt he was owed something uh, at that point as well so probably if you're in that situation we think you're getting no thanks or appreciation it probably does weigh down on you a little bit so can't necessarily blame him for that no for what it's worth a few weeks after Adelaide Hill would get a new contract and Williams noted uh, when they announced it Frank has now rewarded Damon by giving him the financial recognition he deserves. So they saw the light in the end, even if it was perhaps only temporary. So we're on to the title decider. It's the streets of Adelaide. Schumacher and Hill 
are separated by a point again and they charge away out front after poleman Mansell is slow away off the line. And here was matching Schumacher stride for stride, Williams deciding for once to match Benetton on the light fuel load strategy of a three-stopper. And the gap between them is up to two seconds by lap 36. I mean, the first stint of this race is incredible. If you've not seen it, you should go and watch it. It's two drivers absolutely on the limit between the walls. They're blowing everyone else away. It's fantastic. Um, so, yeah, the gap's up to two seconds by lap 36. The biggest it had been all race when Schumacher slides off the road and hits the outside wall um, early in the lap. Now, before we get on to what happens next, uh, one thing that's worth noting is Benetton took some wing off Schumacher's car for the race, and he said that made it quite nervous and was one of the reasons it stepped out on him a few times before he got caught out by a bump, which put him into the wall. Schumacher obviously skates across that little bit of grass, hits the wall on the outside, and he's rejoined the track by the time Hill comes around the corner. But Hill spots him going slowly and dives to the inside for the next right-hander. Schumacher turns in, they collide, and as Andy described at the start, you have that iconic image of the Benetton up on two wheels before it plows into the tyre barrier. Hill limps back to the pits, but he's got damaged suspension. I think he makes reference in his book to uh, Patrick Head trying to manually straighten the suspension out of his bare hands and Damon thinking, nope, I won't be driving that, thank you very much. But it is declared that uh, he, you know the car is not fit to continue. Hill's out, so Schumacher is confirmed as champion at the side of the road. Before we get into the aftermath of this and properly analysing everything else that went on, Andy, let's start with you. What's your view on the crash itself? I think if uh, if you gave Hill the opportunity to do it again, there's no way he'd make that move. Um, but how could he possibly have known you know, what the situation had been. He, he saw that Schumacher was there and potentially there for the taking and, and, and he went for it. Um, whereas, obviously, in hindsight, he'd known if he'd just held off and, and waited for another corner, it would have been his and he'd have been a 1994 world champion. Um, but the only person who really knew what the situation was was Schumacher. He'd, he'd gone off, he knew how hard he'd hit the wall, he would probably have had a reasonable idea of the damage that had done to his car. Um and then, you know, he was presented with a situation where he had Hill on the inside and it gave him the opportunity to take him out. Um, as far as, you know, I, I can see, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty clear cut. Yeah, it's one of those things. It's clear that, uh, that Schumacher shouldn't have turned in on Hill at, at that point, even if in a, in a healthy car given the the loss of momentum and the it was a perfectly legitimate move, even if it was in an odd place. And yeah, I mean, I know Hill would have would have loved to have had a had a bit more knowledge of it. He sort of he'd ha he was just having a little bit of a break because we sort of see him haranguing Schumacher for a few laps and then just have a little bit of a a kind of breather if you want, or just you get that natural uh, uh, just kind of split in the uh, in between the two cars. Um, but yeah, there's no question that when you, when you break down that that accident, yeah, it was uh, it was not kind of a legitimate uh, one, shall we say? Although I think we'll. That there's there's a wider debate to be had about the exact circumstances, which I think we'll probably move on to in a minute. Yeah, now painfully for Hill, an hour after the incident is when he realises what's gone on because Barry Sheen gets Australian TV to play Damon a replay of it in the garage. And there's footage somewhere where Damon's staring at his little screen and he goes, no, at the pictures when he realises how hard Schumacher had hit the wall. And in his book, he says his first reaction to watching it back was that Schumacher could not be allowed to get away with it. 
But let's hear Schumacher's side of the story, shall we? Because um, he obviously had to come up with an explanation at the time. And this is what he said. When I got back onto the circuit, the steering was not working properly, but I didn't know the extent of the damage. It turned in strangely, and I don't know how close Damon was or whether he could have tried the other side. He was coming with more speed than I had at that moment and obviously wanted to slip into the inside. I also tried to turn into the corner, as you are going to if you are leading a race, fighting for a championship, and the car is still going. The next thing I knew, I was up in the air. Ed, does that defence wash with you at all? Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't really work. There's a number of factors, not least the fact that if you watch the onboard, you can extremely clearly see Michael Schumacher having a very long look in his mirror. So he knew Hill was coming and what was what was going on. It, it's a difficult thing to to analyse because I think at the time I'd have thought, yes, oh, it was all premeditated. So he hit the wall, thought, oh, I'm out of the race. Oh, I'm in the this doesn't feel right. I better drive into Damon Hill or I'll win the championship. I don't think it's quite that similar. This this view's partly uh, sort of helped me formulate it by uh, speaking to Pat Simmons, who was his race engineer, obviously a senior engineer at uh, Benetton at the, at the time. And I, and I think when you get someone like Michael Schumacher, who's one of his great strengths is just ferociously competitive. And most of the time, that's for the better in that it allows him to push himself to, to do everything right to, to deliver those wins. But as we saw, sometimes in these high stress moments, I almost feel like you get your wires crossed in that he'd hit the wall. He'd have had a pretty good idea he was in trouble. And I think at that point, rather than thinking it all through, the mindset is, oh, I've got to stay ahead. I, I can't let him go past. And then I think that kind of leads to that desire to turn in on him. It doesn't excuse it. It's still incorrect to do it but i'm not convinced it's quite as uh as lengthy a thought process it's not like you've got five minutes you, you probably had a what was it about five seconds from 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 hitting the wall to, to that moment if that probably probably a bit less so it's almost kind of a wires cross moment i think you see the same later it, how much kind of agency really schumacher had in it is difficult because again from speaking to pat simmons he said that at the time he he never gave it a moment's thought to think that that schumacher hadn't done had had done it deliberately he thought yes it was it was uh, a mistake but clean but then he said well when i saw what happened at Hereth in 97 monaco 2006 of course when he uh, had that sort of simulated crash at rascast to to hold on to pole position of course simmons was on the other side of it that time because he was with with uh, what was then the renault team with alonso who was denied uh, potential pole position and he said he did start to think about, well, actually, maybe there was something in Schumacher. But I think it comes down to this desperation to win. And sometimes he does things that weren't quite right. And that I'm not even sure straight after they happened, he realised he'd done almost. So I think he's being sincere with his explanation initially. But I don't. it's almost misprocessing the, the whole thing. Still not, still not right, though. Yeah, we'll come back to uh, what Ross Braun said, because obviously he was close to Schumacher in the team as well, and perhaps the influence of those future incidents on how this one is looked back at. But in isolation, Andy, when you hear what Schumacher's description of it, I mean, I saw you chuckling along as I was reading it out and as Ed was talking about certain bits of it. The bit that gets me is, why didn't Damon try the outside? And I sort of think, well, because you'd have sent him up the escape road. Well, to me, that sounds like someone sort of trying to retrofit the answer uh, to, to solve the question, um, you know, make it up as it goes along. I don't doesn't don't think it really washed. I mean, it, it may not have been premeditated, uh, but all the best racing drivers are, are opportunists, and Tumac had an opportunity there to um, put pay to, to Hill's challenge, 
Um, and he took it. Yeah, and it's interesting to think how maybe different F1 history would be because if Hill had won that championship, would he have crumbled in the way that he did in 95, taking Schumacher to his second title? But Schumacher did his best to then come out of the day with some dignity, dedicating the championship to Senna and declaring that the Brazilian would have won the 94 title. He apologised to Hill as well for comments he'd made earlier in the year about not respecting Damon as much as some of the other drivers on the grid. Hill said he appreciated that, although when he saw Schumacher at breakfast in the hotel the next morning, he went over to congratulate him. And in his book, he said he did that because he wanted to see if Schumacher could look him in the eye. And Hill hoped that would be an awkward moment for Schumacher, but seemingly it wasn't. I think we all know that Michael Schumacher was made of slightly sterner stuff than to be affected by something like that. And in fact, and I, I suspect Damon might not know this, but when Schumacher returned to Germany to celebrate the championship, he used the exchange to his advantage and was to and told the German media that Hill had congratulated him the next day. So he suggested there was no problem. And when he's asked about the incident in Germany, Schumacher said, I drove my line and did it without malice. I only saw Hill right before the big bang. I did not steal this title. Now, Ed, you mentioned... Pat Simmons, and I said we'd come to Ross Braun's thoughts on this. Ross has no problem accepting that what Schumacher did at Jerez in 97 when he crashed into Jacques Villeneuve and the deliberate bad parking attempt in Monaco in 2006 were clear offences. But he says that he's never he never spoke to Michael about Adelaide and he still doesn't know to this day if he did it on purpose. As I mentioned earlier, do we think that when the other incidents happened, did they solidify perhaps a feeling that Adelaide must have been deliberate as well? Yeah, I think they have to be taken into account, don't they? Uh, it's almost like the reverse of prior offences are taken into account in a in a, a court case, isn't it? So, yeah, I mean, it, it clearly paints a picture of a pattern of behaviour, a willingness to go to extremes. And you could bring in, for example, 2010 Hungarian Grand Prix when he squeezed Rubens Barrichello into the pit wall. Not just towards the pit wall, but he touched the pit wall. You, you could see the tyre mark. And yeah. Rubens was basically attached to Schumacher's car. So this willingness to go to these enormous extremes that uh, that, that just don't, don't, don't make sense. I mean, certainly it was far, far more complicated than thinking, oh, I just turned in normally, because he didn't. That, that That's not what happened in Adelaide. I don't think anyone could uh, say that. For me, it's just a question of gradation of exactly what causes that sort of thing to, to happen. But I'd actually agree that probably... When you look at something like the Monaco, I'd agree with Pat Simmons, that's probably the worst of them because he had a bit of time to think about that one and then actually quite badly execute it. He'd been more convinced. Oh, been more convinced. It's like, oh, I'm going to sort of deliberately crash, but I'm going to do it really... Just just drive into the wall properly, but it's not... It is, yeah, you've got to commit to it. It's, it's just not... It's against his nature to do that. But I think it tells us something about Michael Schumacher and I think... It, I, I do believe it's a manifestation of something that was usually positive it's but again th these these incidents were wrong no question and he's one of those drivers that's got a lot of these in uh, incidents on his uh, on his record and that does count as a negative against Michael Schumacher when we look back on his greatness still an absolutely great racing driver phenomenal racing driver and the one last thing that's worth mentioning for Adelaide is the whole Benetton team did feel quite put upon that season so this is maybe part of it in that they felt that they were the worthy champions and that every turn the FIA was trying to trying to nobble them now how you want to interpret whether that's a justified view or not, it's nothing. But again, it's just part of that context that leads to this desperation to hang on. Um, and and uh, yeah, it, it's it's it looms large. You say Marcus Schumacher, Adelaide 94 is one of the things that comes up just the same as many of those great, great victories do. 
Now, what would happen with an incident like that today? Because obviously three years later, Schumacher gets thrown out of the 97 World Championship for the move on Villeneuve, but he'd come off second best in that one. So perhaps it was easier to strip him of a pretty meaningless second place in the championship than another title. Williams didn't lodge any form of protest and Hill talks about everyone just wanting to move on from 1994, you know, a dark year for F1 in so many ways. So perhaps in any other season, Williams might have challenged it some more. The FIA was sent some amateur video footage from someone claiming it supposedly proved that Schumacher took Hill out deliberately, but nothing comes of that either. And what's happened to that footage? You think in the YouTube era, somebody would have uploaded that. Hill mentions in his book that he felt there was a new tradition developing at the FIA to not enforce penalties for these types of accidents. Because if you think we'd had the controversial Senna-Prost collisions of 89 and 90 had decided championships, we're now only in 94. Andy, do you think F1 was letting too much go at this point? And perhaps that her F97 was the moment that Max Mosley decided something had to change with the way on-track conduct was policed? Yeah, it's funny that you know, we had those incidents because at the time they sort of felt like they were isolated incidents. Okay, you had part one and two of the Prost Senna thing, but you know, the controversial um, clashes between drivers weren't so much of a thing then. And you know, the I think that's what we were all taken a bit by surprise between the uh, the Schumacher Hill uh, incident in Adelaide. I, I, I don't think there's any way you get away with it now with the forensic detail that's gone into when analysing all of these incidents. You know, we went on for about six weeks looking at Vettel putting all four wheels uh, off the grass, um, or off the track in, in Canada last year. How long would we have spent trawling through the data trying to work this one out? So I, I can't see um, how we would have got got away with it. I mean, they were simpler times back then. Things were just put down as a racing incident. Was it better? It was certainly quicker and easier. Was it fairer? I mean, probably not. Um, but that's just the way it was. I think there was also an element. This this was box office, wasn't it? F1 had had, had its kind of initial phase of, of massive growth being on television. But actually, the, the, the death of Senna played a big part in boosting uh, Formula 1's popularity. Uh, it, it drew attention to it, I should say. Obviously, the, what happened to him wasn't popular in itself, but it, it kind of put F1 in the news. And this was a massive story. We still talk about this today. Well, we're literally talking about this today. The Prost Senna collisions. I don't think a day goes by when I don't see it referenced on Twitter or some other thing or a comment on a story on the race or whatever. So, yeah, pe- people are, uh, remember this this sort of thing. And it becomes very difficult to, to slice and dice it because if you look at that incident in isolation, then you would say, well, yeah, Damon Hill was robbed of the title. Look at it in a wider context. You'd say, well, clearly Schumacher was the better driver. Then you start bringing in where you stand on the illegality over the season and does it go back the other way? So there's lots of different ways of uh, of, of looking at it. And it's an eternal debate, isn't it? Which is, which is kind of what sport's about. You don't want this happening all the time. And I think that the Hareth 97 punishment, the, the exclusion of Schumacher from the from the championship, admittedly only second place in the championship rather than first, was a marker, wasn't it? It was right. Just bear in mind that if this happens down the line, there's a precedent there that you, you can be robbed of this championship. So Mosley, who was actually a much more powerful figure in Formula One by the time he gets to 97 than he was, even in 94, he, he, he was initially tried to be a quite low profile uh, uh, FIA president, but that, that role really started to grow after Senna and then over the years continued to 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 grow. So yeah, it's uh I, I think it's probably on balance 
quite positive for Formula One because remember that race a hell of a lot more today than even if if Schumacher had held off Hill and won the title yeah we'd remember it's a good finale if Hill had managed to find his way past we'd remember it's a great finale but it's that collision that it's remembered for and if you ask for the I don't know 25 most memorable moments in Grand Prix history that's going to be one of them isn't it yeah definitely and we won't get into this now Uh, it can have a future episode but I'm fascinated to know or to wonder if Schumacher would have been thrown out of the 97 championship if he'd won it but we're talking about 94 you know I've defaulted to 1997 as I always do before we wrap this up uh, one thing Hill said at the time was and as we've just mentioned people will be debating what happened here uh, for a long time and he's absolutely right because all these years later we've created a podcast looking back at this era of F1 and we've just dedicated an entire episode to it so let's finish the episode on Schumacher because uh, Benetton team boss Flavio Briatore said Michael has won the championship with just 12 races. Remember we said earlier he got excluded or banned or thrown out of four of them. So Michael is the right champion. Bernie Eccleston also said he felt the right person won the championship. Andy, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but can there be any debate that ultimately the right person or the best driver that year won the championship? No, I think absolutely. Um, Schumacher was was the best driver of that year. Um, I've been a massive fan, you know, there was this guy who burst onto the scene in uh, Inspire 91, uh, had this electric pace and, you know, really shook up an order that had been pretty much the same um, since the mid-80s. So it was great to, to see this new kid come along and, and, and really shake it up. And, you know, the, the way that he'd driven, I felt, you know, for the first part of that year, actually it's funny, looking back now, and I'd forgotten just how bad uh, those standing drivers at Benetton were, you know, without Schumacher there, they went from being a, t- a car that was usually on pole, if not the front row, and fighting for wins of the races, to struggling to qualify inside the top ten. I mean, with Josh Verstappen and JJ later, it was it was barely a competitive midfield car. I guess that raises a couple of questions of, you know, uh, how much was the driver influencing that? It was you know, we a bit like how the difference between. Uh, Mansell and Patrese uh, in 92 and Mansell just being able to get more out of the, the package that they had then with the with that car you know was it just that, that Schumacher could beautifully exploit it because it was it was built around his driving style um, or were there as you know Senna had observed after he'd been taken out in the Pacific Grand Prix two Benettons on the grid um, you know, there's there are a lot of quite as you mentioned earlier. We could probably do multiple uh, podcasts around the '94 season. There, there probably are still more questions and answers about that. But I think ultimately, while I might have despised the way that he went about doing it, uh, Schumacher was the rightful champion uh, in 1994. Yes, there's no way you can you can argue with that. The the collision is is a thing that will always be a black marker against Michael Schumacher, but that's kind of the one big negative in his career. He's still an absolute all time great, and I, and I think the fact that Schumacher was performing so well in '94, in fact, those who worked with him felt that he probably could have won a world championship even in '93 with the, the right car, but the Benetton B193 wasn't a strong enough car. The fact that Hill could be this kind of Johnny Come Lately driver who'd sort of almost backed his way into Formula One after a relatively late start to his to his car racing career. Obviously he started off in in bikes and he was kind of seen as just this sort of curiosity, this son of a son of Graham Hill, who was just having a little bit of fun. And I, I feel like he managed to prove so much by going toe to toe with Schumacher on occasions. And he did that uh, at times in, in ninety four. You can only 
drive the race and the season that's in front of you. So credit to Hill. But you know, from a from a pure yeah, if you, if you did your top ten drivers of the season, Michael Schumacher would be number one. And I, I don't think anybody can make an argument for not putting him number one, other than by just overwhelmingly weighting it purely based on that the kind of the, the the few negatives of that season about what happened to Adelaide and some of the other question marks about the the car that season. So yeah, worthy championship. And I think it's a, actually a bit of a shame that Schumacher's Benetton era sometimes gets a little bit ignored when they look back on how great he was. Obviously, he had this amazing success with Ferrari, five world championships. But you can make you can make a very strong case for those Benetton cycles. Even ninety four, the tainted one in one of F one's most unpleasant seasons, was a was a great great performance and let's not forget how much pressure Schumacher had on his back being Formula One's superstar driver and he came through he won the championship all the time driving higher the standards raising the bar for what a Formula One driver is and we've got to remember all that we've got to remember the good with the bad doesn't excuse what happened on track at Adelaide in 94 it was wrong clearly whatever the exact mechanism or what was going on in his brain but yeah still overall you'd have to say a worthy champion even if Hill would have been a worthy champion for a very, very different set of reasons. Well, that seems a fitting place to bring the episode to an end. Thanks for joining us for the latest episode of Bring Back V10s. Remember to check out therace.com. As Ed always says, don't forget the hyphen. Get in touch with at WeAreTheRace using the hashtag BringBackV10s to get your questions in for our series finale, which starts next week. And you'll notice I used the word starts there. So a little bit of news for you. If you've got all the way to the end of this episode, we've had so many questions already with those of you just responding to our calls in these episodes that with a series finale is going to be two episodes. So you're getting a bonus episode to end series one. And then uh, Andy and I need to have a debate about when series two will begin because we're starting to get asked about that. We've got many more series of this to come and lots of ideas for what will go into series two. And, uh, yeah, maybe maybe once social distancing ends, I can try and twist your arm, Andy, into when we're going to release Series 2. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure when we will do uh, Season 2, but there definitely will be one. Um, maybe that's something for you and I to discuss offline. Yeah, I thought putting him on the spot in front of the listeners might work. But anyway, thanks very much for sticking with us to the end of this episode. So we've got two more to come. Still a chance to get your questions in, and we will plough through as many as we can over two episodes now not one so we'll see you next week where we'll start cracking into those questions and i can tell you we can't wait to start talking about some of this stuff 